Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. This is part two of the Cumbria Shooting Spree series. If you have not listened to part one, please listen to episode 50 before listening to this episode. In episode 50, we cover the crimes committed during the shooting spree, and this episode offers analysis of the crimes, the suspect, and the police response. So it's going to make a lot more sense if you listen to episode 50 first. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the show's host, you can reach me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure that I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. And before we get started, this probably will be a shorter episode. I'm, I'm guessing it will be, and we'll cover some stuff at the end not related to the episode, some stuff coming up on uh, CrimeCon and a little bit more about my background. So uh, if this ends up being a shorter episode, stick around, and uh, I'll have some more information at the end of the episode uh, about some stuff coming up here in the future. But just for a recap, in part one, we talked about the shooting spree carried out by Derek Bird on June 2nd of 2010 in the area of Cumbria in the United Kingdom. After crashing his car, rendering it unoperable, Derek went into the woods and shot himself once in the head, killing himself. This was after he killed 12 people, including his twin brother, his lawyer, a fellow taxi driver, and nine random strangers. He also shot and seriously injured three other taxi drivers and eight random strangers. The entire incident from the first phone call after Kevin Common's murder to Derek taking his own life was roughly two hours. The first call had come in at 10.13 and Derek killed himself around 12.15. Later investigation would realize that in the two hours during the crime or the shooting spree, Derek had traveled 52 miles in an unpredictable pattern and mainly on back roads that he knew from his many years as a taxi driver. The overall distance and his ability to travel from one area to the next quickly via back roads made it very difficult for police to locate him. Officers arrived at the location of his abandoned vehicle around 1230 hours. They formed up into a couple of teams and walked into the dense woods in an attempt to locate the suspect. And at this point, they were unaware that he had taken his own life. And this was actually mentioned in the report as an incredibly brave action on the part of the officers, as Derek could have set up an ambush and shot several of them from a position of cover and concealment. And again, we mentioned in episode one, gun violence especially at this level, is very rare in the UK. So while police officers in America may have more experience dealing with this or, or training, and we'll talk about that later as well, it would take a lot of courage for these officers to go into the woods to seek out somebody who had already killed 12 people and likely would not hesitate at all to, to shoot a police officer. And 
if this had happened in America, what I talked about in part one likely would have been more in play, and that's the whole perimeter thing. We likely would have set up some type of a, a perimeter around uh, this wooded area as best that we could, uh, utilizing things like they had at their disposal, air support, and eventually, if officers had to go in, uh, they would have likely gone in with canines, with, with heavy uh, ballistic bunkers, that kind of thing, probably even if they could get in there with some type of an armored vehicle, because the likelihood that this person who's already killed 12 people is going to try to take an officer's life is pretty high. You know he's armed, you know he's willing to shoot people, so again, I understand the, the desire for the UK police in this in this situation to, to try to locate Derek and put an end to this shooting spree, but at the same time, it's, it's very likely that they could have lost some officers at the end of this um, situation because a lot of these guys, it's one of two things in an active shooter. The active shooter either wants to get into that blaze of glory, last stand type of a shootout with police, or they're going to take their own life before police arrive. And oftentimes this is because as much as police are trained to shoot to kill, they don't always shoot to kill. If they've incapacitated the target, most times they're going to then make an effort to keep this person alive and these active shooters often don't want to be alive they don't want to go to trial they don't want to face justice for what they've done they want to take their own life and be done with this and like i said go out in that blaze of glory but with the likelihood that when you're in a shootout with police that you survive then you don't have the control to take your own life and this is all about control so Luckily, in this case, Derek had already killed himself, so the police aren't in any danger, but there, as I said before, a good chance that Derek could have set up some type of an ambush. And when I mentioned cover and concealment, not a lot of people know that there's a difference between the two. People use them interchangeably. Cover is anything that's going to protect you from incoming uh, projectiles, like bullets. So... You can, and the best way to think of this is you can have cover without concealment, you can have concealment without cover. Cover without concealment, let's say you're standing behind a giant pane of bulletproof glass. Whoever's shooting at you knows you're there. You're not concealed, but you are covered because they can shoot all they want and they're not going to hit you. Then there's concealment, and concealment is they can't see you. But let's say you're concealed behind a, a hedgerow bullets can go through the hedgerow so if the person knows you're there you're concealed but you don't have cover the best combination in an ambush situation if you're the one trying to do the ambush is to have cover and concealment so getting behind a very large thick tree would work uh, or a fallen log where you can pop up and shoot rounds but then if somebody's shooting back it's it's hitting the the thick log and they can't hit you but while you're behind there you also can't be seen so uh, if you're the person who's setting up this ambush you're going to pick a position with cover and concealment and unfortunately if you're the officers looking for this person you don't have that choice now if you come under fire of course you're going to move quickly to 
your best cover and your best concealment but sometimes you get one or you get the other and you don't have a choice so luckily that's not the case and just to say how difficult this was like i said they entered they arrived at the vehicle around 12 30 and it didn't say how long i'm going to give it maybe 15 minutes of the most before they set up these teams and go in the woods but they don't discover his body till 2 p.m so it's still going to take them over an hour of searching to find his body so this is how dense and how dangerous these woods were and the train was in order for him and and the way i saw it too i, I didn't see the actual picture of where this search occurred i i saw the the overall the map i guess i should say of where his vehicle stopped and where he walked off to to kill himself but i didn't you know there weren't crime scene photos but this was in the foothills of these mountains that make up this national park and i can only imagine again in addition to cover and concealment if you're the guy who's going to do the ambush or the gal that's going to do the ambush you also pick a position of advantage to include better lines of sight and most cases the positional advantage of being up a hill so if they've got a search like I said this area is likely uneven terrain with potential for the suspect to be in a position of advantage with cover and concealment and said even with these teams out searching and the fact that he's killed himself so it's not like he's on the move and being able to evade them it still takes him over an hour to find his body and he was found to have eight rounds in the magazine of his rifle and another six live rounds in his pocket and no live rounds were found in the car so it appears that Derek had shot all of his shotgun rounds and he used the last of those rounds to kill Jane Robinson and C-Scale so when we go through the list of crimes, there's actually a point in which he becomes less lethal. And that's when he has run out of shotgun rounds. Because remember, that sawed off shotgun at close range. If somebody's ducking their head into a car because he called them over to ask for directions or to get the time, that sawed off shotgun at that range is, is lethal. And he kills a lot of people with that shotgun or the combination of the shotgun shot and then two shots from his rifle. But as he runs out of shotgun rounds, he's switching over to his rifle. I believe his rifle's having malfunctions, and it lowers his ability, thankfully, to take lives at that point. And as it said, he was only he was down to around 14 live rounds total between what he had in his pocket and what he had in his magazine. So even if he hadn't crashed his car, he would have been running out of ammo now we'll talk later about how much ammunition he had at his house and again that's kind of confusing as to why he took the amount that he did when he had so much at his house but i guess it's possible if he ran out of ammo that he'd drive back to his house even though i'm sure there were officers there so again he was nearing likely nearing the end of the shooting spree no matter what and that's probably another reason he didn't want to get in a shootout with police and run out of ammunition and then be taken into custody under english law uh, derek was a registered gun certificate holder and apparently according to their law they are allowed to have unlimited shotgun ammunition and they're limited to 1500 rounds of 22 caliber 
and a search of his home revealed that he had a stockpile of 240 shotgun rounds and 750 additional rounds of 22 caliber. And it's estimated he fired, and this number is up for debate depending on which site you look at, uh, anywhere between 18 and 23 rounds of 22 caliber and 29 shotgun rounds during his rampage. And I don't believe they're counting the 11 rounds he shot his brother with in that in that number because we know he shot a lot more than than seven rounds during this this rampage so i'm guessing when they say 18 to 23 rounds of 22 they're talking about from the time of kevin commons murder on and had derek not crashed his vehicle and had he brought more ammunition along the shooting rampage would have been even more deadly so as i mentioned he had access to 240 more shotgun rounds and he took 29 to 30 with him and when he ran out of those shotgun rounds is when he became less of a lethal threat not to say he wasn't still a threat but he was less of a lethal threat for his way of of killing people at that point and he only brought along what appears to be roughly 25 rounds of or sorry probably closer to 40 if you include what he had on him at the end but maybe roughly a box of 40 or 50 rounds of 22 caliber and he had access to so much more at his house so again it it almost seems like he was teetering on the idea of going on this rampage and not going on this rampage because he gave up his best gun the night before and he didn't bring all of his ammunition with him so i don't know if it's one of those things where he killed his brother and then killed the lawyer and we'll talk about why we think he did that and then he got it in his mindset that he was going to go kill the darren the taxi driver and then he just at that point said well i'm i'm in I'm doing it now I might as well just keep going and he hadn't really planned on that and that's the only thing I can think of just based on some of the actions that he took before and during this rampage and the next few months would be spent investigating the reasons Derek went on this killing spree and the strengths and shortcomings of the police response that day so who was Derek Bird Derek Bird was born on November 27, 1957, in Cumbria. He had two brothers, which included his twin brother David and an older brother named Brian. And he had been separated from his wife for roughly 15 years, and his wife and him had two sons together. One of those sons had recently made him a grandfather, and he spent most of his life as a self-employed taxi driver in the Whitehaven area. It was reported that in 2007, Derek sustained serious head trauma during a beating he took from four men who skipped out on their fare. And some of his friends said his demeanor changed after the attack. And it was said in the source material, the beating was so bad that his teeth were knocked out. And this is something that taxi drivers unfortunately have to put up with. First off, it's when we talk about victimology, um, we talk about high risk, low risk behavior. And we talk about sex workers having a high-risk behavior lifestyle because they're letting people into their lives that they don't know in extremely intimate situ- and vulnerable situations. And unfortunately, the, a lot of sex workers end up getting killed either by 
the situation they're in or by a serial killer. And it's the same thing for taxi drivers. It's one of the most dangerous professions. You're letting somebody you don't know into your vehicle. Oftentimes they're intoxicated, so their decision-making is already questionable. And then you get this group mentality, and apparently that was the case, a bunch of younger guys that wanted a taxi ride, but then at the end decided they were going to not pay and just take off. And Derek was not somebody to back down from a fight, so chances are he ran after these guys when they skipped out on their fare. And if he caught up to one, maybe it was a situation where the other three came back and then he's now outnumbered one to four and they they beat him pretty severely and my guess is he suffered some serious head trauma as a result of this beating and it's the friend said he changed after that and i have to believe it was a change on several levels there's obviously a physical change that comes along with the concussion and and the beating that he sustained but there's also some psychological issues that go along with it and from everybody that they talked to, there was an ongoing court case and he had some anxiety about the court case and about uh, continuing as a taxi driver, but that was his only way of making money. So things did not go well for Derek after this 2007 beating. And Derek had held a shotgun certificate since 1974 and he always renewed it, but after the beating he applied for a rifle certificate, which he was granted. And he was said to be extremely close to his mother, who had just recently been released from the hospital after a battle of cancer. But he never really spoke about his family to people. And when he went on this shooting spree, uh, it was said that a lot of people were surprised that he had a twin brother because he never really talked about him. And we do know that there are some issues between him and his brother, so it's not completely surprising. But most people who have a twin most other people know about it especially in this small community we're not talking about london or or a larger city in england where you might know somebody and know nothing about them this is a pretty small area uh like i mentioned with limited people i should say it's a big area but it's got limited people living in it so it's one of those areas you think everybody would know everybody but uh, apparently, you know, Derek kept his family from uh, most of his friends and that kind of stuff. Now, as for the killing spree, police believe the catalyst was an investigation Derek was under by the HM Revenue and Customs for tax evasion. And this is where I mentioned yesterday there was a different name that I saw because I think the name given yesterday was some type of revenue service. And th it w wasn't called this, I don't believe. Uh, when I mentioned it yesterday, but I think it's the same thing. It's basically the UK's version of the IRS. And government officials had recently learned of a $60,000 cash account Derek kept at a bank that was funded by untaxed taxi income. So Derek, had, as a taxi driver, a lot of that job is cash jobs. So you give somebody a ride, they give you 20 bucks for your their fare, it's in cash, and it sounds like Derek had the tendency to basically squirrel away this cash, and he didn't report it as income to the government. Eventually, the government's going to catch wind of this 
untaxed income and they're going to come after him wanting him to pay taxes on it and while the official motive for starting with his brother and lawyer open to speculation it is believed that Derek thought the investigation into a secret bank account may have been tipped off by his brother and lawyer which stems back to issues from his father's will back in 1998 and I also saw this several different ways uh, one said that Derek went to his brother when he found out the government knew about his secret bank account his brother recommended the lawyer but then at some point Derek felt the two of them were conspiring against him and he was supposed to meet with this lawyer that day later that day to discuss and I think an accountant to discuss kind of some of his options and it had been explained to Derek that he likely wasn't facing jail time, that at most he'd probably pay a fine and he'd have to pay taxes and he had enough money. It wasn't like he was gonna have to pay all that $60,000. If the fines were five grand and his untaxed revenue was 10 or 15 grand, he's still sitting on you know 40 grand plus in cash depending on where the fines and stuff land. So he, was really worried about going to jail, but his lawyer and his accountant had told him multiple times that he likely wasn't gonna to go to jail for this. This was not something where the government was gonna come after him with jail time. They just wanted their slice of the pie from his untaxed income. And it sounds like Derek, though, didn't believe this would be the case, and he was pretty convinced he was gonna to go to jail for this, and that might have been kind of his you're not going to take me alive going out in a blaze of glory uh, decision catalyst and Derek also had a grudge against three of his victims as they were former co-workers of his at the nuclear plant that he had been employed back in 1990 and remember we talked about how they have these armed uh, nuclear security officers basically their job is to protect the nuclear power plants well there was one nearby that's why they had so many available for the search for Derek and he had been employed actually at this nuclear power plant but he was fired after he was caught stealing lumber from the workplace for personal use and he did not receive prison time but he had long complained about some of his co-workers that still worked there and lived in the area and I'm sure just based on his personality that we've seen so far, he's one to hold grudges. He's he's not one to hold back his opinions of others, and he's one to hold grudges. So he's, despite everybody describing as a pretty happy-go-lucky guy, I think he's one of those guys that once you got on his bad side, you were on his bad side forever. And, and again, he would hold that grudge. He would talk bad about you. He would make plans to get back at you. And I think that just compiled for 20 years here between stuff that happened to him in work in 1990 stuff that happened with the taxi he was always complaining about other taxi drivers taking his fares and, and money seemed to be a big motivator for him and then his disputes with fellow taxi drivers as i mentioned was also a partial motive and one of these other reasons to look at that as a motive was that many of them had made fun of him for a long-distance relationship he formed with a Thai woman after one of his many trips to the Southeast Asian country and so he as I mentioned in episode one he was big into scuba diving he gave away some of his scuba gear he went to the house of a guy uh, that he knew from the scuba club during 
during his rampage, probably set to kill him for some, again, slight or issue that he had stemming from their time together on the scuba diving club. But it sounds like he went to Thailand regularly to do scuba diving. And while he was there, he met this woman. And of course, she begs him for money when he gets back home, which he sends $1,000 back to her, and then she breaks up with him. And I'm sure he was upset about this, told some people at the pub, or complaining about it as he's waiting with the other taxi drivers. And instead of getting sympathy, it sounds like he was embarrassed and then had to be angry over the situation because and then some of his fellow taxi drivers were making fun of him for it so it's kind of that insult on injury thing going on here where instead of getting sympathy from people for making this mistake they're making him to feel like an absolute fool for falling for this scam and again money and grudges are kind of a big part of Derek's life. Uh, The shooting prompted talk about stricter gun laws in Britain, something that has also occurred after similar mass shootings in the country that occurred in 1996 and 1987. Uh, Derek owned three shotguns and one 22 caliber rifle that he mainly used to shoot clay pigeons and target practice in rural areas. And while doing research into his weapons, I found it did say his 22 caliber rifle is fitted with what they called a sound moderator. And most people refer to these as a silencer, but it's not exactly the best term for this device. It's basically, in order to completely silence around, you have to have what's called subsonic ammunition, and that's ammunition that travels at less than the speed of sound. Otherwise, you'll get the crack from the bullet breaking the speed of sound anyway. Um, but you can have something that dampens the the sound of the the gas ignition and i was kind of surprised that these would be considered legal because of the strict gun laws in britain however it did kind of make sense that if you have this with a 22 caliber rifle you can go out and target practice and you're not going to bother your neighbors or you're going to farmers can take care of varmints on their property and not get you know upset their neighbors or whatever it might be so to me it seems like it's kind of it's legal because it makes shooting less obtrusive on others. and But this would explain why when he shot Kevin Commons with the rifle, that this neighbor who originally called it in claimed it was an air rifle. Because it doesn't completely dampen the sound of the, of the 22 report, but it does make it so that it's it's going to sound much more like somebody's shooting with compressed air. So the woman that's hearing this, especially from a distance, she's thinking this person's using an air rifle because a 22 caliber rifle doesn't look that different than a air rifle. And it's not making the, the loud report of a 22 rifle. So that might explain some of the, the confusion early on. Ultimately, no laws were changed as a result of the shooting, as the UK already has some of the strictest gun laws in the world, and no reasonable changes in law would have made any of the guns, ammunition, or equipment owned or used by Derek illegal. It was just one of those things where, I mean, short of banning guns altogether, he used a 12-gauge shotgun and a 22 caliber rifle. These are not normally 
extremely lethal weapons in a situation. It's it's not the uh, larger 223 caliber, larger, more powerful 223 caliber rounds that, or the even larger um, 7.62 rounds that, that the AR platforms or the AK platforms use. So it's it's not like he either had access to or legally owned you know heavier weapons short of making shotguns and all rifles illegal in the country that this really couldn't have been prevented and even when you look at his ammunition you could say well you can't have people stockpile that much ammunition and he didn't use his ammunition stockpiles as i said he probably grabbed one box of of 50 22 caliber rifle rounds and a box of 40 shotgun rounds or two boxes of 20 shotgun rounds and that was the amount that he used to create this much carnage so limiting people to you know 40 50 60 shotgun rounds or 100 22 caliber rifle rounds down from unlimited and 1500 wouldn't have prevented this this incident so i think they looked at it and just said the laws are the laws we can't make them more strict we just have to hope that this kind of thing doesn't happen again and a post incident review in which most of the information for this episode was found there are several established shortcomings and hurdles that the police faced on that deadly day so i'll talk about some of the hurdles because i didn't want to bring these up before because i wanted to focus on the story but there was a large gypsy convention going on in the area on this day and so this was going to take a lot of the police resources from the area and and put them further away from where the shooting spree began and i don't think derek bird had any idea that this gypsy convention was going on it was just one of those things where police resources were being set aside for a, a different purpose and it just made it more difficult when he did start his spree to get officers available because it mentioned in the source material that at this gypsy convention there were two families that were involved in some type of ongoing altercation and both families were going to be present at this convention so they had a large officer pre- presence from the cumbria constabulary that were going to be attending the gypsy convention that day to try to keep the peace so resources almost always thin for law enforcement in the first place are even more thin now because of this gypsy convention and then in a freak and tragic accident the week before two school children were killed in a school bus accident and the funeral for that uh, for those children was uh, set for june 2nd so there's going to be a large uh, gathering of people, and this was in a different part of Cumbria, but there's going to be a large gathering of people. They're going to need traffic control, all that kind of stuff. So again, the already thin amount of officers in the area are getting even thinner. You have this gypsy convention, you have this large funeral, and you can't plan for these types of incidents. We talked about it in the uh, terror in california series the original night stalker um, series where during his uh, visalia ransacker and east area rapist days 
the police tried to saturate areas with officers but you can only do it for so long and you can you already only have limited resources and if you put all those resources into a potential issue like i said eventually you run out of them and they can't plan every day as if some person's going to go on a uh, shooting spree so they have to plan every day yes you you plan for the the worst and hope for the best but you can't go day in and day out staffing your police department as if you're going to have a critical incident an active shooter or something like that because eventually you you burn out those resources so it just happened that they were thin that day and there's no way they could have predicted that this was going to happen on top of it and then there's a couple other things uh, one of the two armed response vehicles in the area was down for maintenance and this had not been brought to the attention of the commanding officer and this so they're by law allowed to only have a certain number of what they call their armed response vehicles and these are vehicles where the officers have weapons and body armor accessible to them in the vehicle as they're driving around so by law they're only allowed to have i think it was a couple of these operating in the area and one went down for maintenance and didn't sounds like didn't tell their commanding officer so they're down to one armed response vehicle and they could have then if the one was down for maintenance they could have had two firearm trained officers go to their armory and get weapons and body armor and they could have basically made another armed response vehicle prior to Derek Bird's shooting spree but they just didn't know that they, this other one was down and technically they were short ones so again you add that to gypsy convention you add it to large funeral in the other area one armed response vehicle down and you've got like I said just a lot of handcuffs and hurdles to dealing with the shooting spree and as i mentioned there were some on-duty firearm trained officers but their weapons and body armor were locked up as they weren't allowed to carry them in the cars and that's a decision that has to be made after the shooting spree begins so there's going to be a time delay in which the officers get to their stations get to their armory and become armed response vehicles we talked about eventually about an hour later we were up to 23 so as began it sounded like you had maybe one so within an hour drawing in other resources and and giving the okay to arm more officers and put more arvs out there it sounds like they had eventually had enough resources but it took an hour to go from sounds like one to up to 23 and then by the end of it they had 40 of these armed response vehicles out and as i mentioned before um, with this big gypsy convention going on it was actually going to be going on later in the day so many of the firearm trained officers uh, were off duty at that point because they were going to be reporting for shifts later in the day they wanted as many of these firearm trained officers working shifts uh, to, to potentially handle any issues of this gypsy convention so they when this all started they had to you know call in a lot of these firearm trained officers that weren't actively working whereas if this convention wasn't going on i think it sounds like more of them would have been scheduled to be at work when this incident occurred and then we've talked about it extensively through 
uh, part one and a little bit into part two is active shooter situations in the UK are so rare that there's not a lot of experience and training in active shooter situations at this time for the, the police department um, in general. In America, unfortunately, ever since Columbine in 99, law enforcement agencies have had to stay pretty consistently trained with these active shooter situations. The department I worked for, we had uh, in our city several large corporations that had their headquarters in the city, and it was always a fear that somebody would get fired from their job and come in and do kind of one of those active shooter workplace situations. That combined with having a major high school and and several other schools, we always had to be ready and we trained pretty regularly with these active shooter situations, uh, utilizing different buildings. We had working relationships with churches, with the schools, with these large corporations to come in and put on these active shooter drills uh, to practice this kind of stuff. And that was in the unfortunate instance if we ever had an active shooter in a building, we would have already had some experience from a training level of how we were going to arrive, operate, work together, put an end to it. Because as I mentioned, active shooters usually don't stop until they have a confrontation with the police where they either take their own lives or they get in a shootout with the police. As long as there are innocent targets that aren't shooting back or fighting them, they will keep shooting and killing people until somebody comes across them and stops them. So we were trained to get there, team up, get into that building, stop that active shooters as quickly as possible. And that was unfortunately due to the fact that we face that as a much higher level of threat in the United States than they do in the UK. But that means when it happens in the UK, it's not as likely that they've trained up the situation that they've had practice in dealing with this. And also active shooters in a building is a lot different than an active shooter out on the move in a large area. Now, another issue they ran into was their lack of experience working with ambulance crews and, and rescue personnel in active shooter situations. This is another thing that we worked on uh, quite a bit. It was We called it 3ECHO. There's a bunch of different uh, names for it out there, but it's where when you have an active shooter, you have to work with your first responders, your fire department, your ambulance crews, because there are gonna be injured uh, people that need to be evacuated from a potentially dangerous area and you have to have communication between law enforcement and EMS in order to make this happen and it sounds like this was a difficult part of this process for for the situation because they had officers that were going to these scenes whether it was a the one traffic accident that was reported as a traffic accident the guy had been shot in the head and killed uh, whether you had um, you know all these taxi drivers that were shot in downtown Whitehaven uh, officers were getting dispatched to these and then they were staying with the injured people providing medical care waiting for EMS to get there and that tied up police resources because they couldn't just turn around and leave these people there and there was a lot of confusion between EMS 
where they needed to be. Of course, they're limited with their resources as well. They only have so many ambulance crews, so many uh, paramedics or EMTs, and you have so many victims. So again, not having likely done a lot of co-training together, and I don't know that for sure, but it just sounds like based on the report that, that there wasn't a lot. They didn't have that working relationship established to that if something does happen, this is how we're gonna do it. And it also comes back to what I talked about in episode one with the incident command. Normally, in this situation, that's the reason we trained is you'd have an incident commander with EMS and an incident commander with law enforcement, and those two should be by each other so they can communicate where resources need to go. How can we relieve some officers from this crash that is a medical situation, whatever it might be? It, it just provides for better communication. It sounds like in this case, it was very, EMS was doing their own thing, law enforcement was doing their own thing, and it was causing all types of issues. And as I mentioned before, they're not used to chasing down an active suspect. And one of the main issues in this is radio communication. And this is both in radio traffic volume and finding the right channel. Where I worked, we had one channel that was shared by three cities on the regular basis for dispatching, and that was just for your normal call load. If you had a major incident, whether it be a pursuit or a major crime or whatever it might be, you would switch over to a tactical channel and then other officers and agencies could jump onto that channel and it wouldn't tie up the, the main channel with traffic. or you could keep the main channel for the, the major incident and push all other traffic to a, a secondary channel. But, and, and the, the benefit to that was you could also tie in uh, the fire department, EMS, everybody onto one channel. The problem with that is then you have a large amount of radio traffic volume. And what we would often run into is people that either aren't used to talking on the radio often or are not used to the situation in general, they talk too much on the radio. So it eats up the available airtime for somebody to actually air out something as in, I see the suspect or I'm following the suspect vehicle. Uh, when we used to try to talk on the radio, if somebody else was already on there, it would, it would we call it getting bonked because our radio would make this bonk sound as you try to key the mic uh, to, to talk. And I don't know how many times I was in a situation where I needed to talk on the radio to tell dispatch and the rest of the officers that I had visual on the suspect or you know, needed to pass along information and somebody's talking about they're arriving in the area or they're you know, set up on a perimeter or whatever it might be. And eventually we had to get to the point where all of that information was put out via our MDCs, our squad computers. You would just send out a message saying I'm in this area to keep that radio traffic clear for the incident. So if you can imagine on a situation like this, he shot 12 people in different locations everybody at each location is trying to get on the radio to get EMS help, to give updates, eyewitness statements, direction of travel, whatever it might be. 
and they're all talking on the same channel at the same time and then you have incidents like the helicopter being miscommunicated that he thinks he's over the suspect but really he's at the suspect's last location got a whole bunch of people running to that location it's like i said it's just it's just a mess so these incidents again they are they're difficult from every aspect and the uk actually did a really nice job of breaking this down afterwards and coming up with different procedures for the future to try to limit uh, some of the issues they had during this and this was right before the uh, London Olympics in 2012 and it actually mentioned that in the report that they needed to fix some stuff before the London Olympics just based on what happened here now thankfully the London Olympics went down without any major incidents but they realized that one guy on a shooting spree in an unpopulated area of the country caused this many issues for their uh, command structure and radio and all that kind of stuff that if they're going to host something as large as the Olympics in a city as large as London, they needed to have some plans in place for how to handle major incidents. So, But that's going to be it on the case of Derek Bird and uh, the Cumbria shooting spree. Again, I wanted to break it down into the two different episodes. One episode really covering what actually happened and the other episode covering more of why it happened and what the UK police learned from it. And I hope that I in no means meant to jump all over the UK police for their response. I think they did the best they could and that's why I brought up some of the hurdles they were facing that day. I don't think that given the resources that they had and the, the lack of experience and training in this that they could have really done much differently. I think they did everything they could to try to put an end to this shooting spree uh, be before it became even uh, as deadly as it did. But a combination of Derek knowing these back roads so well, being able to stay out of sight, I said communication issues, resource issues, everything just kind of made this situation a lot worse than it could have been and again i'm not bringing fault down on any any uk police officers that are listening to this uh said so i'm not not jumping all over you for your response that day i just i think it's very important that this was discussed and i think it's really great that this report was done where they broke down all of the the shortcomings and what they learned from it and how they're going to fix things in the future and i hope to not have to ever report on an, another major shooting in the uk but if i do maybe some of the stuff from this one will will make that one less deadly so and then uh so that's it for for derek bird but i'll talk real quick about CrimeCon 2023 i have a few minutes at the end of this episode to discuss that so i am going to CrimeCon 2023 which is in Orlando, Florida this year and runs September 22nd to the 24th. Uh, I know there are still tickets available. There's still hotel rooms available. So if you are planning on going or you are already going, uh, I will have a booth there. I do have a bunch of promotional products on the way that I'll be giving out. I've got a prize wheel. You can get a, a shirt for um, I guess your option would be to win a shirt or you can get a shout out on the podcast if you spin the wheel and land on that. Otherwise, there's going to be can koozies, frisbees, uh, stylus pens, uh, 
magnets I'm going to be giving out, and I'll just be there to talking to anybody that listens to the podcast or wants to listen to the podcast. You can learn about me. You can learn about my background. Uh, most of you know through if you've been listening since the beginning or you've checked out the Facebook page or listened, listen, I guess, yeah, like I said, listen to my podcast. I'm a 17-year veteran of law enforcement, a medically retired police officer. Um, I spent uh, 13 of those years uh, working on our crime scene unit, uh, leading many of our major crimes investigations. And then I'm also a six-year veteran of the U.S. Army, uh, two deployments, including one overseas deployment to Kosovo. Uh, So I wanted to put together a podcast that has a lot of experience coming into it to talk about these true crimes, to talk about breaking down the investigations, or in this case, you know, the the response to the active shooter based on many, many years that I practiced for this stuff, that I um, you know, spent days training on, on this type of a, a thing to be able to come uh, onto this podcast and talk about these experiences and, and break things down in a way that gives you a true voice from uh, experience in law enforcement and crime scene investigation. So, but again, I appreciate you guys, uh, all the fans on Facebook, all the uh, followers, and the reviews and ratings that I've gotten so far um, on the different podcast platforms it's awesome to see that people are enjoying the podcast enjoying listening to it and feel free to reach out to me and i'll just one more time give you the email for the host is true blue crime productions at gmail.com and you can find us on facebook at true blue crime productions and if you can please support me via patreon at true blue crime productions I'd love to be able to give some Patreon shout-outs in some future episodes uh, before or after CrimeCon. Um, But that's it for today. Thanks, guys, for listening. Have a great day. Goodbye.